Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lanier. Is the pursuit of happiness making you unhappy? Are you avoiding the things that make you emotionally uncomfortable? And how could fear, guilt, or anxiety help you become stronger? Todd Cashton is here to explore the upside of your dark side and why it's time to get comfortable with what makes you uncomfortable. Well, for years, I did whatever I could to hide my anger, to hide my grief. I, uh, I believed that being angry or sad was bad. It was best to keep these feelings hidden. I was ashamed of these feelings. I felt weak if I admitted I was sad or angry or impacted in some emotional way. But the reality was I was weakening myself by trying to hold back what I was feeling. And when I finally allowed myself to have these experiences, as painful as they were, I ultimately felt stronger than ever. And, uh, and I, and I had more energy because I wasn't trying to hold them back anymore before it was like trying to contain a gorilla in a trash can. So experiencing these emotions and coming out the other side has given me more confidence and courage. So I want to fast forward to today where we've got this pursuit of happiness and positive psychology. It's more popular than ever. And I love positive psychology. I love what it's bringing to the world uh, so that we can actually learn how to thrive and flourish. But that said, I see a shadow side. I notice more and more that followers are creating some kind of a message that it's best to ignore or repress or dismiss this dark side of our emotional world, that in order to be happier, we have to favor only one side of the emotional coin. And this doesn't jive with me because of the experiences that I just mentioned. So when we hear that being successful is dependent upon our ability to be happy, and I'm using quotations there, are we essentially saying that it's time to stuff the fear and anger and guilt and sadness and just stick a fake ass smiley face on everything? Are we creating a culture that is in reality more fragile and unable to tolerate discomfort? So I hope that's not the case. That's why I brought Todd Cashton here uh, to talk to us today. He's a professor, a psychologist, and he's the co-author of The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. Todd, thanks for being here today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Is pursuing happiness making us unhappy? That's the big question here. 
Um, so the, the quick answer is yes and no. Uh, no in that this is what we all strive for. When we have children, it's the first thing we think of, what we want for them. Um, most of our aspirations, probably the end game, is that we want to be happy. And there's, there's a ton of research, we're talking about decades, suggesting that it doesn't just feel good to be happy, but when you're happy, you have better immunological functioning, you have healthier relationships, you're more likely to recover quickly from, you know, from injuries and illnesses and um, life's woes such as divorces and separations and breakups and job losses. But the problem lies in when we make it the objective of our life and mm. Plenty of smarter people, much, much smarter people than me, Emerson, Thoreau, philosophers have talked about that, you know, happiness is something we catch along the way as we're working towards what matters most to us. And we, when we make it a byproduct of doing things we love, kayaking, reading books to our children, um, doing interval training in the gym, and then feeling that joyousness, that contentment that comes from feeling comfortable in our body and developing our minds. And happiness is great. But when we, when we make the objective of when we wake up in the morning to be happy, it's very problematic because most of the things that lead to what we want in life requires us to deviate from happiness. And so if I, if I make it my target, like I'm going to be happy today, that's the thing I'm going to do. That's when I seem to create more unhappiness for myself rather than I'm going to do the things that fuel me, that have me feel stronger, energize me, whatever. Then happiness is a byproduct. Is that what you're describing as, as a more ideal way of looking at it? Right. So if, if Trip, if you came up to me and said, today, I want to be happy. Um, the first question I'd probably ask is, what does that look like? And you would describe, oh, well, if I was having a conversation, I'm going to be telling stories. I'm going to grab the podium. I'm going to ask questions of my friends. I'm going to talk to attractive people. I'm like, okay, well, let's start there. And that's as opposed to let's try to take this thermostat about in terms of your mood as a thermostat. And I want it to be 76.7 degrees and nice clear skies and a little bit balmy. Mm -hmm. um, then what that means is every time it gets a little bit higher or lower, you, you get stuck looking at that thermostat. And every time you're focusing on that thermostat of what's my mood like, what's my, what's my mental state right now, that's time you're not paying attention to the attractive person in front of you. That's time you're not spending time listening to an audiobook while you're driving, while you're driving to work. It's time that you're not looking at your children that are saying, Hey daddy, uh, do you want to, can you play box with me? Where are you right now? Mm -hmm. And so I'd say, Move away from the thermostat and go live your life. I like that. There's a, there's a, I'm finding that there's this unconscious belief that if I'm experiencing negative, negative emotions, meaning I'm staring at the thermostat and I'm realizing it's not where it is, then somehow I'm fundamentally flawed or my life is fundamentally flawed or I'm, I'm, I'm worse like, oh no, now I'm going to repel the things that I'm wanting to create because I've, I've done all this study and I see that you know, being happy is, the, is, one of the, is this fundamental aspect of creating all the great things in my life. So now I'm in this spiral of self-criticism. I'm turning the blade on myself. So is it that we need to learn how to just use our emotions as information to help us make better decisions? So that's the start. And we spend a lot of, I spend a lot of time talking about, you know, there's a reason we've got over 4 million years of evolution that have given us these quick, automatic, reflexive responses to the world. And so the reason we have anger is because this is what arises when we feel as if there's an obstacle in the way of what we're working towards. And so we get angry 
when we're trying to buy a new house and the other real estate broker is trying to lowball us and this other real estate broker is not uh, doesn't want to repair or pay for the damaged window that's in the foyer and they don't want to pay for the fact of the you know that the the stove isn't working properly mm-hmm. either you take it or not you get angry because your idea of a new house is being violated your idea in terms of what's fair is being violated and you get angry now one response and we have a lot of psychologists and deep and thought leaders and you know well meaning you know tv hosts and writers and journalists that are saying listen when you're kind and optimistic and compassionate and you try to think of the perspective of the seller and the real estate broker you know that's the best way to negotiate and i would say and this is a strong a strong point that i want to make is that what we normally do is we prematurely rule out psychological tools because they only work some of the time, not all of the time. And anger is one of those psychological tools where you don't want your default to be Lou Ferrigno turning into the Hulk when you come into work in the morning. You don't want to be Lou Ferrigno when you walk into your house to say hello to your romantic partner and your kids when you come home from work. Right. But when you're in that negotiation with someone that's not your close friend or family and they're trying to lowball you, the appropriate expression of anger that's proportional to how this person is behaving is possibly, and the research backs this up, the best way to get the best outcome in that situation and have them concede to some of your requests. If you don't express that you're pissed, if you don't express that that's unfair, if you don't express is, listen, you're not talking to me like an equal in this negotiation right now. Well, then they have the, there's the likelihood they're going to walk right over you. They're not necessarily a giving person because you don't know them. Right, right. Well, I, there's a lot of things I want to unpack in there, but the big one is that, A, it's okay to feel angry. It's not poison. It's not a, I love the, it's not a genetic flaw. It's there for a reason. It's there to, it's great information and it's also a great response. Hey, I'm pissed. This is not working for me. We need to, we need to uh, come at this from another angle. This is not okay. So I'm not going to put a face over that and act like I'm not pissed. Being pissed is the, is the appropriate response. And there's a difference between being pissed and then being aggressive, turning into the Hulk and ripping the guy's arms off. But, exactly. But, but, but the, the core message here is if I'm pissed, own it. Hey, this isn't working for me and I'm upset here. And I think that, you know, we've talked about this a lot in other episodes, but there's this fear of, well, if I'm angry, then I might upset the situation. I'm going to break connection here. This person won't like me, but it's not, we're talking about something more, how to, how to really build resilience here. I keep getting the word grit. You know, it's like, am I willing to go into those uncomfortable places and trust that and test that, that the good stuff is on the other side, that, you know, that, that if I can show up as I am whole, and we're going to talk about wholeness in a minute. And that that's where the, the really solid relationships are going to be built on that. When I can show up with anger, I can show up with sadness, et cetera. Yeah. We don't want to take fear, sadness, anxiety, embarrassment, and guilt out of the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're talking about trying to form alliances, trying to form good collaborations at work, well, when you feel guilty, that's the distress. It's uncomfortable. We would prefer a world where we didn't feel guilt. But what I want to say is you feel uncomfortable because you feel as if you did something wrong that let someone else down. And because of that discomfort, you're going to probably modify your behavior the next time. If You, you might have felt like you slacked off in that group work together. Mm-hmm. And the next time, you're probably going to be the first one, person to to you know, raise your hand or point out that, listen, let me take the lead, let me put it on my shoulders this time. That's beca- that productive behavior 
for the next time you're working with these characters is because it's sparked by the distress, the discomfort that comes with guilt. So if we try to say to ourselves to be happy, we miss the value of the motivational pull of guilt is to be a better person. And if I get anxious when I'm talking to you now because I, I want to make sure that my ideas are communicated clearly, well, that's a signal to telling me of like, all right, you know what? Maybe I'm describing it too complica- in a too complicated way. Maybe I'm talking like a professor and not a human and not a father and not a friend. Mm. Um, so it's, I feel that because it's a reminder of maybe I'm screwing this up. And so there's an opportunity if I listen to that emotion to modify my behavior when we talk in the next sentence. Yeah, I think the fear, and th- I'll just speak on, from my own personal experience, but the fear in the past was that if I allow myself to have this uh, negative emotion, if I acknowledge it, that I'm going to get eclipsed by it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be consumed by it. If I allow myself to feel sadness, it, that's what it's going to be, and like I'm always going to be sad or something. There's some irrational belief there, so i got to push it down, push it away. I keep coming back to this statement you made in the book about learning to embrace and use negative emotions as positive ones. That's how we position ourselves for success, and that's what you're describing here is like, oh, this is information. If I'm feeling guilt, if I'm feeling anxiety, this is information. It's it's guiding me. It's trying to it's trying to inform me instead of let me push it away. I love what you described because um, having gone around and giving like just this Monday, I was doing a workshop with Customs and Border Protection, and these are tougher, stronger, physical, more masculine men than you and I put together. Um, because I saw a picture of you. Um, <laughs> and, and, and in my in my tutu, what, which which picture are you talking about? <laughs> You're just like a cute looking friendly guy. Uh, these these guys are these guys are warriors. They're going to protect us from anyone that touches our soil that's not meant to be that's not meant to be on this soil. Um, they're they're the warriors on the front lines. Uh-huh. And one thing about it is they described a similar thing trip that you said, which is I worry about anger is that it will flow over me, on me, through my veins, and I won't be able to control it. If right. I get sad uh, because, you know, my grandfather died and I let that, and I let myself, you know, sit with it, channel it and kind of soak in that of those types of feelings, those thoughts about what I'm missing. And there's, there's a phone call every week that I will, no one will ever be able to replace my grandfather. That mm. if I go there, I won't be able to come back and be productive and be present you know, in all the work that I love doing. And so it's not the emotions. What we really need to work on is the biased beliefs that we have about emotions. We have relationships with our emotions. Some emotions are our friends Mm -hmm. and some emotions are our enemies. And what I'm suggesting is we start to develop a friendlier relationship with these darker emotions that we don't like to talk about in polite company, particularly men. You know, this is a podcast about men. Right. The, The men have a much narrower window of what's socially acceptable to talk about. And you, know, you think about like, like a president like Abraham Lincoln. You know, he would never be elected to office today. This was a guy who suffered from melancholy, from mm-hmm. episodes of depression his entire life. I and mean, he was a somber, sad, depressive character. Like he, he was not going to make you laugh. I mean, he, was, you know, he would bring you down just by him yeah. walking into a room. Um, he's ugly as all hell too. So. He was, he was pretty, yeah, pretty unattractive <laughs> as well. And, you know, he's kind of gawky looking yeah. and people would view that to his depression today, his recurring depression as a fault in his character. Mm. And th- that's a big fear in, in male culture, which is my masculinity will be dropped down if people knew that I can go into these depressive spirals. But here's the thing about Lincoln that you can learn from is his accomplishments 
civil war, slavery, are not from overcoming his melancholy. And it's not from transforming that into something good. It's from integrating it into his life. Because he was so had the tendency to be depressed, his empathy to understand what it was like to be in the shoes of a black man and woman back in the, you know, back in the 19th century, which just was this was far superior than another human being. Mm. His ability to take the perspective of someone that disagreed with him was because he was sad. He could understand, you know what? I can understand why you would want help for that cause, even though I don't like the way that you frame it. And so when he formed his cabinet, when he was president, he had most of his candidate was not from his party. It was from the other political party because Mm -hmm. he recognized that I need their perspective to keep my biases in check. And it came to the Civil War by being sad. When When you express sadness as a man or any human being, what it does is it makes people want to give you kindness. It wants to people to give you. I want to. I want to give you support if you look downcast. Mm-hmm. And Lincoln, by having this regularly, knew that he could play the long game. I know what it's like to suffer, and he's the one that came up with the statement: um, "This too will pass." Mm. This was a guy that understood that, despite being in the pits of despair, it eventually ended. So he played the long game. He spent over a decade working people slowly to kind of understand the side of being a non-white person and someone like that with that skill set and the long game and that melancholia would never survive because they wouldn't pass um, the moral strength test that we think is true now which just happens to be a complete lie and it's absurd well that's there's there's two big things there at least two uh the ones that stick out to me is i'm going to integrate this i'm not going to run away from it and and that's what I'm hearing you say that that enables us to be even more strong is I'm willing and able to endure these states. I'm not fragile. I'm not afraid that they're going to completely consume me for the rest of my life or whatever that might be. Uh, because I have experience in these places. I understand that they ebb and flow and they go up and down. Um, And so that integration is key. He didn't put on a face and say, look, oh, I'm fine. And then it was my dirty secret. It was there. It was, it was, you were able to see that this was the state that this guy was in. Um, But that also strengthened him. It helped him see that long game instead of somebody that's, that's thinking, how do I avoid discomfort at all costs? I, I get guys that come to me and say, how do I, what do I say to my wife so that she doesn't get upset? And I was like, right there, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah, right I there, mean, you're screwed. But yeah. that's what, that's essentially the game he's looking at. It's a short game. He's not thinking the long game, which is how do I build a relationship where things are built on trust? Uh, he just wants to say what he needs to say so that things aren't upset and he might get laid tonight. And it's, you know, the only couples that I worry about are when you talk to your friends, they say, oh yeah, we never fight. I'm like, wow, you must never talk about anything that matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you 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 should be fighting because you should be, because we're not done growing yet. I mean, in our 30s and 40s, we're still developing, you know, what are our core values that we're able to live and die for? Like, why am I, what's going to make me willing to work through a Friday and Saturday night on a weekend because it's so important for me to make a difference in the world? And what is it about, um, you know, raising my kids or mentoring the next generation that I'm willing to give up my valuable time. I'm going to give up a workout. I'm going to give out reading a book. I'm going to give out a walk in the park because I could see that someone um, could use my wisdom and it could save them days with 30 minutes of the knowledge I've gained from the hardships that I've experienced. If we know what we value, we can make great decisions and be comfortable 
with the pain we voluntarily expose ourselves yeah. to. If we don't know what we value, it's a real hit or miss life that we that we that we're experiencing. And pain seems difficult because you don't have the why. Like, why am I working out? And if it's just about getting a six pack, you're going to be done for because by the time you turn forty. All those bugles and Pringles and nacho chips, they're just going to form like, you know, three layers of fat over that, over those abdominals. The best you can do is just not have a kettlebell kind of popping out over your belly button. You got to have a bigger, you have a, need a better why than just having a six pack. Well, I like that you brought the physical component into it because a lot of guys are working out and they anticipate that growth comes from their ability to go into the uncomfortable places in their workout. They know that they're not going to get a great workout unless they go to a place that's uncomfortable for them. And so I want to help them draw this parallel. If you're going through life avoiding that discomfort, uh, in, let's say you're, you're in the gym avoiding discomfort, you're not going to get the workout, you're not going to get the benefits, you're not going to grow, you're not going to develop. But then they go out, they put on their, their clothes and they go out and they say, well, how do I avoid discomfort everywhere else? In my relationships, in, in, in my own personal relationship with myself, however I'm showing up at work, they're looking for ways to avoid discomfort and avoid that, that place. This is the root of the anxiety. Let's talk about anxiety. Let's go there. We've been talking about the, the depression. Depression and anxiety are at astronomical levels these days. How does that fit in with what's happening here? That, you know, what do you, how, what's going on there? How do, why is that happening? Well, let me go back to your gym example because I'm thinking of who's listening to this podcast. And there's, there's this wonderful irony that happens there, right? So in terms of if it comes to the gym, I'm going to put Pantera on or the Deftones. I'm going to scream. <laughs> I'm going to sweat. Um, if I, if I vomit, oh, corner, <laughs> if I vomit from working out, I mean, that's great. If snot's dripping down my face and blood's coming out of my nose, that's great. And yet if it comes to raising your hand in class in grad school, with 30 other smart people in the room, you're terrified. If it mm. comes to um, telling your romantic partner that, you know what, I don't know if we're, this is working out because it seems like we're, we're, we're not on the same page about what we want to do in the next two years because I don't want to live here. I want to live in California at some point. Mm -hmm. And having that conversation, so you're passive aggressive, you spend more time with your friends and you, st you start ignoring the phone calls from your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Somehow, we're of the belief that pain is okay in the gym, but like you said, these other in the social world and a workplace, you want to keep that to a minimum. I don't want to do any extra work that's hard on myself. I don't right. want to have to talk to people that don't think like me or look like me because it makes me uncomfortable. And I would say, if you bring that mindset from the gym, you know, nobody has. We all have uneven courage. And courage isn't about the absence of fear. Courage, courage is only if you recognize that you're afraid mm -hmm. and, you, and you're willing to do something anyway because you feel it's necessary. If you end up being fearless, you don't get to claim courage. Right. You're just, you're just happy to be an awesome sociopath. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's great. I, I wish I could be you. I wish I could be Dexter as well. Um, but I can't. Um, you, you only get to claim it if you experience fear. And right. so fear you know, there's a great quote by C.S. Lewis. I'm not, you know, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe was my favorite book as a kid, where pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Hmm. And, and, so, and it's not, a, and pain by itself is not the objective because that's just pure masochism. Yeah. And I want to make sure that's not the message we're sending out to yeah, people. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. Okay, good. But pain in the pursuit of what we care about, that's heroism. Hmm. And that's what I'm talking about. 
experiencing pain for the long game because you know it's important. You know, when I, I mean, you know, I, I've got three kids, two twin eight-year-olds and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And, a half year old. and hmm. these are these are hostage negotiators. You know, they always get what they want because they never stop fighting and complaining and <laughs> whining. And I can't take 90 decibel levels of, of, of just sheer, eh, for, you know, for more than 15 minutes. Eventually, yeah. they get Godiva chocolates and they get new bicycles and they get new clothes. Yeah. Um, the pain has to be, I have to sit with that and be able to sit with that to modify their behavior such that they recognize I'm not a roulette wheel and they're not going to randomly get what they want every time that they complain and make those disgusting sounds of the whining sounds every minute. It requires me to day by day sit through that pain in order to train them, recognize that I can absorb what you're bringing at me. This household will not be dictated by the whims of what you need here and now in the moment. Mm. It's not lacking compassion. It's not lacking kindness. And in fact, if you raise kids, I'll tell you, they want structure and they'll take punishment to have structure rather than a laissez-faire attitude where you don't actually provide them the guidance and wisdom to make decisions in a world that's completely over their heads in complexity. Right. Right. I mean, that's, kids want to know, how do I deal with the kid that keeps on taunting me at school? Kids want to know, how do I deal with the teacher that really, truly doesn't like me? And how do I deal with friends that's spending time with other people more than, than with me? And, mm. you, you know, they want structure in their lives. And when we create structure of what's acceptable and what's not in the house, even though it's painful to us, that helps, that ends up ironically leading us to be better parents and then to have a better childhood, and then to have a better future. And it also sends then the message of like, hey, the going's going to get tough, but that, I'm not going to leave. I'm still here. Yeah. And I think that's an, a great externalization of this whole process of what we're talking about. It, it happens on the inside. Do I check out as soon as things start to get uncomfortable? Do I, do I bail on what I really care about? Do I bail on my dreams? Do I bail on the people that I care about when things get a little uncomfortable? And I love this externalization of like, man, I've got 90 decibels barking at me and it's day in and day out. And my job is to stay there and stay connected, try to keep my heart open and also keep an eye on what's most important, which is being a, a, a good father. And, and I'm not here to be their friend. I'm here to serve them. I'm here, I'm here to be their dad. And I, the same's true. We've got to have that conversation within ourselves where we don't betray ourselves. We don't wake up 20, 30 years from now and go, what the fuck did I do? I spent 30 years running away from myself and running away from anything that made me uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and to transform what you just said, which is much better worded than what I just said, into a, a tangible tip for people is, you know, the naive person would envision. So imagine you have to give a big talk in front of a room full of people. This is like one of the top three fears of everyone around the world you right. know, from J Japan, Kuwait to here. Um, the naive person envisions this. They've been trained, you know, mental mental visions right you kind of just imagine that it goes effortlessly everything mm. you say is perfect the crowds laughing with your jokes and the crowds looking at you they're clapping with you that's the naive person and that's how we've been trained since you know arnold schwarzenegger and pumping iron he talks about kind of you know imagining if you need to be able to imagine lifting bench pressing 750 pounds and only then can you do it only it's 750 pounds <laughs> you know and then and, and the next segment he's talking about having an orgasm in his bicep because like he's inside of his bicep while he's doing <laughs> curls i mean um one thing to remember is arnold schwarzenegger is not like the rest of humanity he is he is uh, a freakish character on steroids and 
is amazing at what he did. But you can't you don't want to imagine it being effortless. The average person envisions giving that talk in front of a hundred people, that there are gonna be some hardships. People might yawn, people might whip out their smartphones and you know, playing video games, and they get paralyzed and they mm. get so nervous that they don't decide to cut things out that they're not sure will work well with the crowd. Right. But the agile person, and that's what I'm interested in, how do you develop emotional agility? The agile person envisions all the things that could possibly go wrong, all the possible obstacles of that talk. Someone's going to yawn. Someone's going to walk out of the room and huff. Someone's going to slam their seat down, pissed off at what you say, and say he doesn't know what he's talking about and walk out of the room. Imagines that and then imagines and prepares what you'll do when that happens. That's the emotional agile person. Is that I'm going to imagine the obstacles. I'm going to imagine how I'll respond such that when I get in front of that audience and people walk out of the room and people laugh, not with me, but at me, yeah. and people are pissed and cross their arms, I've already imagined that exactly what happens. And I sit there and say, you know what? It looks like not everyone agrees with me today. I'd only be worried if 100% of you agreed with everything that I'm saying here today. Mm. Take what you like, discard what you don't. I'm just another vulnerable human being like everyone else in this audience. Yeah. And then continue speaking. And when you can imagine that, you will be better prepared. When you can imagine what it's like to lose your breath 30 meters underwater for a 50-meter underwater swim, what are you going to do when you run out of breath? Mm. And imagine that. What's going to be your plan? You know, Navy SEALs, they call that a contingency plan. When you do mental vision work that involves that kind of behavior, imagine the obstacles and imagine what you'll do when they come up. That will prepare you to be emotionally agile. It reminds me of uh, The Art of War, Sun Tzu talking about the samurais dying before they go into battle. Uh, it allows us to just let it go. Okay, well, all this shit can happen now. I'm still going to go do this instead of I'm going to go run away now. All these things could happen, so I'm going to run away. Well, all these things could happen, and here's what I'll do. I'll, 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 I'll have some kind of contingency for it. Um, and I love that agile versus fragile. I, 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 so much of this is, is there's so many of us walking around that are fragile, uh, especially posturing as if we're not. Um, and, and, and I, that's what, I, that's the thing that I want to kind of break into here is that being willing to go in and have these experiences, uh, is what's going to make us agile. What if it's no big deal if we find ourselves tripped up and we find ourselves sad or, uh, uncomfortable in some way? What if we didn't have to worry about getting a no from somebody? What if we didn't have to worry about feeling uncomfortable around something? How much more available do we have? How much more stuff do we have available to us in life? That's what excites me. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about wholeness because this is where you start to lay out the path forward. Um, describe to me what it means for you, for, for somebody to be whole then. Yeah, for me, the idea of being whole is how you become exceptional in life, which is when you can be comfortable with every side of your personality. I mean, think of it like, you know, like a 20-sided die. And there's the kind side of you. There's the aggressive side of you. There's the selfish side of you. There's the selfless side of you. And some situations pull for the aggressive dominant version of you. And some situations pull for the fearful person that's kind of really prepared to protect yourself, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's, whether it's ticks, whether it's bad guys, mm -hmm. um, whether it's, you know, whether it's pitfall, your neighbor's pitfall, whatever side of your personality that appears, you're comfortable of recognizing of it has use in certain situations and I'm willing to go there 
if it will lead to the best possible outcome. And that's what it, to be whole is to be comfortable with all the different sides of your personality. You know, Fred, it's, it's inspired by Frederick Nietzsche who said, the great epochs of life come when we gain the courage to rechristen our evil as what's best in us. Huh. And, and I, and I, you know, I just noticed on your, you had a, this, this article about um, Kobe Bryant being a loser. And I was laughing because I actually think he's the great example of when narcissism is healthy. Mm-hmm. Because Kobe Bryant, like a lot of players in the NBA, is a very narcissistic guy. But he has the healthy side of narcissism, which is, I call it narcissistic admiration, which is essentially, it's like holding a sign that says, I have great strengths and the world needs to admire me. Mm. And what it motivates you to do, it motivates you to be unique and it motivates you to put extra effort and work in, in, in training sessions behind the scenes. So you are unique. So you are worthy of admiration. So you are worthy of, you know, of being on a pedestal. And the thing about Kobe is he also has a sense of entitlement, which is I am deserving of having half the court to myself before Laker games so that I could practice on one side and get myself get in the zone while the other rest of the team works on the other side. And he's, you know, he's a little bit of an asshole when it comes in that way. But he, he puts in more work than everyone else because he has that deep need to be shown to, for it to be shown that he's great because he believes he's great. And that's different than those people that are narcissistic that believe that they're better than everyone else. And so everyone should give them the best table. They deserve first class, even if they bought a coach ticket on a plane. And they deserve the attention because they're smarter than you. You know, they speak more witty than you do. And they're, they're more physically attractive. But they don't put the work in to earn it. They're just entitled. And yeah, and that's the unhealthy side of narcissism. And this is a side that each one of us has to our personality, which is, why do we develop strengths? Why do we learn what our strengths are? The fact that you know, I'm at, my strength might be describing complex ideas in story form. Your strength might be um, you know, uh, asking the questions that pull out the deep vulnerabilities of, of people you just met for the first time. Those are different strengths. When we, we, know, we wanna know what our strengths are because it makes us the most amazing, unique person on the planet. Um, but part of that is narcissism of the sense of entitlement of, I have these strengths, I should find a place, a forum to put them to use. You don't wanna deprive yourself of that, but you don't wanna have that side of your personality constantly at the forefront when you meet people, when you're talking to people, when you're developing relationships, but it is a side of your personality. And those that are more comfortable with it will do better in life. I think you're right, and I'm glad you brought this up because that attribute, is usually at the core of like what people are trying to hide. There's shame around that, right? So if we think about wholeness, for me, that that whole thing is like, well, I'll be whole once I get rid of this thing that I don't like about me. Let me lop off my ugly leg or my ugly appendage, <laughs> and then then I'm going to be whole. Like you're going to see it's because it's a great package. But this thing that's ugly about me, I don't want you to see it. I don't even like to see it. So I'm going to try and hide that. Well, that's not wholeness, right? It's accepting that part of ourselves that oh, even this part, even this part over here. And I, I love that you brought up this this narcissistic aspect of it. But really, it's just can we own our greatness? Can we own what what does make us unique and special? And also what has a shine. And I find that that's really difficult, especially with the clients that I work with, is there's this, this status quo. There's this area where they're being rewarded for wherever they are. And then there's this next level for them. And there's a part of me, there's a part of them that's like, but who am I? 
who am I to go do that work? Who am I to leave what I've been doing? I mean, I'd be an asshole. I mean, I, and people would think I was an asshole. It might disrupt, but at the core of that, it's that fear of like, who am I? Who am I to go do that thing? And that's where they cut themselves off. And I'm, I'm going to raise my head and just say, this is where I cut myself off. Is it, is, it, am, is it okay for me? Can I give myself permission to step into the, my greatness, to step into that bigness? And, uh, and to even brag or to just own, I'm a powerful motherfucker. I can do amazing things in this lifetime. I can help people all around the world. And like to own that, oh no, it feels feels fucked up it feels conceited it feels narcissistic i'm gonna hide that i'm gonna push that away um, yeah i love your i love your honesty and revealing i'm smiling as you're talking i mean so think of these think just imagine if i just asked the question which is what comes up for you when i say the word narcissism and you describe that in great detail you know we we feel icky inside we think of people that we don't want to be around in our neighborhood you know in our workplace but what if i changed the question and said what comes up if i put the word narcissistically deprived in front of you narcissistically deprived and all of a sudden you like is that something you'd want to be narcissistically deprived of deprived of a sense of grandiosity deprived of a sense of a vision that's even too big for where i believe that i am right now deprived of a sense of i'm entitled to get the podium I'm entitled to write the blog post. I don't need to wait till I get a PhD. I don't need to wait until someone anoints me. I don't need to wait until I'm knighted. I don't need to wait until you know the coach says um, I'm off the bench and I'm a first stringer. I can take it now because I have a story to tell. I've got a unique set of personality attributes. I've got a unique life story and life experiences, and it's different than any other person on the planet. And if I can weave that together with the right mentorship, the right collaborators, my time is now. So someone that's narcissistically deprived doesn't have any of that. Mm. And, so, and I think that's, and I'm not saying become a narcissistic person. I'm saying this is a side of your personality and every once in a while, it's okay for that to come out and be comfortable sitting with it. And when, when you think it's valuable, channel it on purpose, bring mm. it out on purpose. Mm-hmm. I, I'm more inspired when I'm around people that just own their light, that own their greatness. And there's a difference between that and being grandiose about it. And But even there, there's there's that's a moving target, right? But I would much rather be around people that are owning it instead of, well, maybe if, once you get to know me, I'm going to let you know this special secret that I have that I'm a badass and that I can do amazing things. Uh, the world needs that. I, I, that's what inspires me. That's why I want to have people like you on this show, people that I want to surround myself with people that are doing amazing things, but they've given themselves permission to do it. They're not depriving themselves of it. So I love that you brought that that word deprive into here. Uh, yeah, and, and, and there's a cool thing that you said, which is, I mean, there's a humility in recognizing that your story is not unique. And there's, a humi- and there's an empathy that's required of, other people have stories I need to learn from so I can steal some of their awesomeness and attach it to mine. <laughs> and I think of so I think of like Elon Musk. You know, I've been following this guy since I was in college, and mm. he's a cocky, brash, amazing entrepreneur. And it's easy to find him now, you know, with his space travel and Tesla and say, you know, he's got his place now in the annals of entrepreneurs. But if you go back just a few years, this was a guy who was grandiose. This was a guy who was speaking before he's quote unquote supposed to, right? Mm-hmm. Taking the podium even though he hadn't fully earned it yet. That stage of grab, and I'm using this term you know, a couple times on purpose, grabbing the podium before you're anointed 
was the necessary stage for him to be where he is now, which is Tesla going through all of its dirty runs and all of its, you know, failed tests and consumer reports and Time magazine and mm-hmm. all the problems with, you know, SpaceX projects. It those failures and that grandiosity and sense of entitlement through it all is what was required for him to be where he is now. And it's important to to have the humility to look at these people as as mentors and and listen and read their stories, learn their stories and see, you know, if I if I go backwards and reverse engineer, um, there was there was a there was foresight, purpose, and a willingness to make mistakes and grabbing the podium before its time that was that were part of the process of him reaching greatness. And mm. I think there's something for all of us to be learned there about. Don't be an asshole with this narcissistic part of your personality, um, but you can have that. And use it to make the world a better place than when you started. Mm-hmm. You can own that drive. Like I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the podium. I'm not gonna wait until somebody gives me permission. I'm just gonna go for it, and I'll learn my lessons along the way. I'll learn what I need to learn along the way, uh, and to to actually be able to take that podium. Yeah, I mean, I have so many, I have so many friends and people that I meet. You know, having written a couple books, that say, "Ah, uh, oh, man, I want to be a writer too." And I'm always like, "Well, what are you waiting for?" Yeah. And they they always have a. Well, I haven't. I don't have the stories you have. I haven't traveled to as many countries you have. I only have my bachelor's degree. You know, um, I just got out of the service, and you know, maybe I should have a few more years. And I'm like, and what's going to happen five years from now? What's going to be different when you when you whip open Microsoft Word and sit there in front of a keyboard and that cursor is blinking, like calling you? Yeah. You're a fraud. You're a failure. You couldn't write the great book. You can't write the great Gatsby. You don't have good English. You know, you can't compose awesome sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be exactly the same as it is five now and five years from now. You just yeah. got to, you just got to, it's time to do. Just get in there and do it. Think less, do more. Well, let's, let's bring that back around. Let's, we've been talking high level. What's one thing a guy can do today if he wanted to start to be more whole or he wanted to confront some of the things that we're talking about uh, is there, is there a practice you can give them? Is there an idea or some, some kind of distinction like, here, take this, go try this. Yeah, there's a number of things. I mean, one thing that I would say is, um, take the negative out of negative emotions. These, these, when these emotions arise, guilt, anger, sadness, anxiety, they often arise because they're pushing us to become better at solving problems in our everyday life. If you experience them, work with them. Mm. You know, I, you know, you know. For this book, I talked to congressmen. Robert and I talked to congressmen, and senators, and mixed martial arts, you know, world champions, and um, you know, um, every, you know, you name the military branch, and mm-hmm. everybody talked about that. The, this idea of they experience fear, they experience vulnerability, they worry about what other people are going to think of them. And people think they're fearless. People think snipers are fearless. They sit in a tree waiting for their target for 15, 20 hours, just waiting, you know, sitting there like they're fearless. Their heart's beating out of their chest. And the thing is, they're able to understand what's happening to them, put a label to it, sit with it, and work with it. Mm. And I would say when we have, for listeners, when you get anxious or fearful, it's usually a sign that something means something to you. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. So walk. So just keep walking. Walk forward and move with your hands and arms. And you know you don't have three act three points of action 
for every thought that you have. You know, stop you know, getting out of your head and into your life is the key is we have it backwards. Instead of trying to change your feelings so you can do what matters, think about who you want to be. You want to be creative, act creative. You want to be honest, say your, speak your piece to the next person you speak to. You want to be um, more dominant, grab the attention of the room and have the proper th- and have the proper words of what you want to say when you get that attention. Mm. Um, once you start behaving that way, you'll start to feel creative. You'll start to feel dominant. You'll start to feel courageous. Um, don't don't start with changing your feelings because there's too many things that are that are out of your control that affect your feelings. Your yeah. hormones, the time of day, how much coffee you had over the past over the past couple of days. Forget that. Just start with actions. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. You know, we don't wait for, I always like to say, don't wait for permission to go do the things that are best for you. Uh, Don't wait until you're in the right mood to go do the thing that's best for you. So if you can get in touch with what is best for you, what it is that you you are ultimately driven to do or become, don't wait until you've got all green lights to go do it. Just start now. And then you're going to confront these, you're going to have these emotions, you're going to have these feelings and it's going to freak you out. But I love what you said, take the negative out of negative emotions, let that inform you instead. Um, beautiful. Todd Cashton, the upside of your dark side, why being your whole self, not just your good self, drives success and fulfillment. Go get the book now. Also go to toddcashton.com. That's T-O-D-D-K-A-S-H-D-A-N.com. Todd, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. No, this, this is what, well, this, this is what I want when I do a podcast, which does not happen all the time. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.